Well, some of you may have figured out we're not home yet. We're only halfway there. What? Mother's interrupted the course of our journey. What? Yeah. She's programmed to do that should certain conditions arise. They have. Like what? Seems she has intercepted a transmission of unknown origin. She got us up to check it out. A transmission? Out here? Yeah. What kind of a transmission? Acoustical beacon that uh, repeats at intervals of 12 seconds. SOS? I don't know. Human? Unknown. Hello, everyone, and thanks so much for joining our Film Talk podcast. Today, we are talking about Alien and The Thing. My name is Chelsea. And I'm Eric. And we are so excited to get into these two films, uh, two of our favorite horror movies of all time, pretty much. Absolutely. And we are going to start out talking about Alien, because it came first. Alien came out in 1979, directed by Ridley Scott, who also directed Blade Runner, Gladiator, The Martian. Yeah, just a little known director. No, you've heard of him. Yeah, just a few, like, indie films. Yeah. And it stars, among others, Sigourney Weaver, Tom Skerritt, John Hurt, and Ian Holm. And... Rest in peace. Ian Holm just died. Did he really? Yeah. Oh, R.I.P. Yeah. F in the the chat. (laughs) And if you have not seen Alien, first of all, go watch it. Yeah, what's wrong with you? Yeah, like, maybe you just need a recommendation from a friend. Right now I'm being that friend. You should go watch Alien, especially before you listen to this, because we will be talking spoilers. This movie is so old that I don't oh, think... Oh, yeah. Major spoiler alert, like, full plot synopsis will happen. Yeah. Or if you want to listen to this first and then go watch it, that's cool, too. You might pick up on things that you didn't care about before. That happens to me sometimes. Mm-hmm. But if you haven't seen Alien, just a quick little run-through of what it's about. After a space merchant vessel, known as the Nostromo, receives an unknown transmission as a distress call... One of the crew is attacked by a mysterious life form, and they soon realize that its life cycle has merely begun. So they are floating through space on their way home, and they're all in like a sleep state on this merchant vessel. And the ship wakes them up early because it receives distress calls from this alien ship. So they go to check out to see what the distress call is all about, and things kind of snowball from there. They sure do. They sure do. So, when I was thinking about some of my favorite scenes in this movie, one of them is literally this scene, which is right in the beginning, Mm -hmm. where they go to explore the ship, and there's rows and rows of eggs. The alien ship. The the croissant, as Ridley Scott loves to call it. What does he call it? It's a, a, he's calling it a croissant. Oh, oh, oh. because he he says croissant. (laughs) That's bougie of him. Yeah, very bougie. Um, but yeah, I actually really love this scene. It like sets the tone for the whole movie, obviously. The whole the tone of the movie is so great. It's so cold and bleak and it makes space seem as uninviting as possible. And I love that so much. It really does. It's so dark and claustrophobic, which is interesting because space is probably like The least claustrophobic thing you can think of, but in terms of being a human. Yeah, in it. In it. (laughs) And it's interesting, uh, you know, astronauts often talk about 
when they're in space, they actually feel like they're being like wrapped in like a blanket of black. Like it doesn't seem like it's something far away. It's like there's no atmosphere and it just feels like they're wrapped in that blackness, um, which feels really interestingly like what this movie can feel like in a lot of ways, you know, in, in sort of an abstract way. Oh, yeah, this movie definitely feels that way. It's so, like you said, so bleak, and it's got that soundtrack that kind of emanates that bleak and dissonant feeling, too. And then you're in the ship the whole time, and it's so claustrophobic. Yeah. Just that opening text scrawl is, like, so iconic at this point um, as the as the opening. Like, it says alien eventually, but it's just these weird little bars across the screen that sort of come together into that word and form alien. But, like, that whole shot is just a pan across this planet that looks just so bleak and cold. And it's like you feel like there's just, like, a breeze that's, you know, from the depths of space that's, like, chilling you to the bone. And and the movie never never really loses that the ship feels very clinical and cold and and industrial and the planet that they arrive on is there's just this constant horrific like wind um blowing all the time or when they're inside there's just this like white noise that just feels like pressure in the you know the back of your head it's it's so well composed the whole thing is so well designed i like that you brought up the wind because whenever i'm thinking of alien that sound that wind sound is just constantly like there yeah they definitely use that a lot yeah and it makes you feel some type of way oh just just some kind of way for sure but yeah this movie really like set the scene for a lot of sci-fi slash sci-fi horror to come and I've had this conversation with people so many times. They ask, what's your favorite horror movie? And I tell them it's Alien. And then I get the, well, that's not really horror. It's sci-fi. It is absolutely horror. It's, I mean, that's ridiculous to say it's not a horror movie. Thank you. I'm glad. Alien is 100% a horror movie. Yep. Sci-fi horror, if you want to put it into a subgenre, but it really is both of those things. Yeah. It's a monster movie in space. I mean, or even like a haunted house movie in yeah, space. Yeah, or a haunted house movie in space. It's, yeah. Pick your pick your subgenre, but it's all those things. Yeah. Uh but that opening scene I really love too, and it is kind of another horror movie trope. The whole why are you going there? Why are you doing this? Just leave kind of feeling. Because they're in this alien ship, which is already uncomfortable because I know there's distress signals, but there's nothing going on in there. Right. So they're investigating something, but it's it's basically it's a ghost ship. Yeah, exactly. It's it's an alien ghost ship, and they are responding to a distress signal, but they don't really understand. Like they don't really understand the message before they're you know deep in it, and you see a lot of very disturbing and unexplained things. They arrive on the ship. It's clearly alien. It's clearly not human, and. This is also sort of the first time that we get a really prominent display of H.R. Geiger, or Geiger, however you like to say his name, uh, a really prominent display of his work on this movie. Um, The alien ship just is like the physical embodiment of 
his sort of psychosexual industrial like merging of technology and biology in a really sort of perverse way that he's famous for uh and it it i think it really defined horror visuals like sci-fi horror visuals forever after i don't think there's like you know there's so many movies and and anything else that are, are clearly built upon what what Geiger invented in the first place uh, with this imagery. And I love horror imagery that is using practical effects, which the next movie we talk about, The Thing, like does this really well too, but they use a lot of practical effects, which I don't know, some people might be able to see as kind of dated, but when it's done well, it's really not. I find it way more effective than if I were to see like a CG creature pop from a human's chest. Absolutely. Which, that's my next favorite scene, so we can just move right on and talk about (laughs) that. But, like, when they are walking through, I don't know, egg field, like, whatever you want to call it on the ship. Yeah. Eggland's best. (laughs) (laughs) They are investigating very closely these alien eggs. So, honestly, great idea already. Yeah. And even though they have suits on, they're not protected. So, one of the crew members gets a face hugger. Yeah alien on his face yeah you've probably all heard the term face hugger or something in your life this movie invented a lot of uh shorthand for things like the term xenomorph is never said in the movie but it's what we've come to know as what these aliens are is a xenomorph the face hugger the chest burster there's all these sort of like shorthand terms for the things we see in this movie but Brilliantly, those things are not really, they don't need exposition to be what they are and to be creepy. Yeah, they've just kind of been given that recognizable term. Because they're so so ubiquitous in pop culture now. Right, exactly. That we have this shorthand for them. Did Did anyone ever tell us those things? Those terms? I mean, someone must have said xenomorph. I think Xenomorph must have come up, maybe even in Aliens, as early as Okay, because I I mean, I know it, but how do I know it? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, And then Facehugger is, is that like a fan term? It's a fan term. Because this movie has such a cult following that those, I can see how that could like spread like rapidly. Facehugger and Chestburster, I think, are both fan terms. Or maybe Ridley Scott said that, and then it like made its way to us or something. He's famously, you know, he's like big on, on design and uh shorthand storyboarding and stuff he's very talented at that stuff and he tends to like you know he, he still to this day calls the alien ship the croissant like in That's every so interview so yeah <laughs> i love that yeah also he originally wasn't the first choice for a director for this film mm-hmm. so i find that interesting because sometimes movies especially this one have no right being as good as they turned out being yeah. like it's almost like a, a series of happy accidents mm-hmm. or fortunate circumstances to create this film that is now so legendary, at least in terms of, you know, horror or sci-fi or, I mean, just in film in general, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that scene where that guy gets the face hugger on his helmet and then they bring him back into the ship. Well, when they get back to the ship, uh, Sigourney Weaver's character, Ripley, who... She becomes the protagonist of sort of this entire franchise, but at this point, she's just one of the crew. Um, she's like the second in command on the ship. 
she when they get back to the ship with uh, John Hurt's character, who is now seemingly comatose with an alien life form on his face, she tells them when they get back to the airlock that quarantine procedure is for him to be uh, kept in that quarantine for a certain amount of time. And Tom Skerritt, the captain, overrules her and with Ian Holm together, the science officer, they open the door and they bring him in to the ship, which Ripley later scolds Ian Holm about for participating in that sort of breach of protocol. And rightly so, honestly. Oh, for I mean, sure. if yeah. they had just followed protocol, this whole entire movie could Might be avoided. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they may have lost one crewman, but they may have not lost anyone else, which is different, let's just say, than what right. happens. But I can understand how, like, a human instinct to save, you know, your fellow crew member would kind of overcome you. You're probably not thinking of future circumstances, or you might have that mindset of it won't happen to us, or you just aren't realizing what a threat this is yet. Yeah. Yeah, I think Dallas, the captain, um, was basically making the human decision to save his crew, um, you know, protocol be damned. And the consequences were staggering, considering what he was, <laughs> what his intentions were. Uh, we'll say that. Right. So he's sort of being like, essentially impregnated by this alien. These aliens are really rapey. Very rapey. Like, they look rapey. They are rapey. They're rapey all around. Geiger really, like, he he absolutely did that on purpose. Yes, it's it's very intentional, and it's it makes it so much more uncomfortable thinking about what these aliens are actually doing and how well that matches how they look. I think. Yep, and I think it's definitely playing on how uncomfortable that would make a human. It's yeah. playing on subconscious fears sexual and, fears. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you know, Geiger. I mean, I think. Most people have seen what the xenomorph looks like at this point in their lives. Um, its head is like extremely phallic looking. Its tail is, you could say it's phallic as well. There's especially a shot later on that's like very phallic-y where the tail is like going between Veronica Cartwright's legs and it looks like it's entering her sexually or like it's going to. And of course, she's killed. She's not. We don't see her being raped. We see her being killed. But it's almost like those are one and the same thing in the the way the alien conducts itself. So very, very disturbing on like a subconscious sexual level. In addition to it just being like murder, we should be scared of that. Yeah. And also literally laying eggs inside of people's yeah. bodies. Yeah. So... The facehugger lays an egg, <laughs> that feels gross to say, inside this man's body. It uses its ovipositor to put an egg inside John Hurt's body. But we don't know that. John Hurt all of a sudden is like, okay. Yeah. And the facehugger appears to have just died on its own. Right. Crisis averted. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So they're all eating dinner or whatever and I guess rejoicing in his apparent recovery. Yeah, there's just a feeling of like relieved tension. Like they're they're past the threat and they're just going to head out now. Little do they know 
They're not. But uh, yeah, so they're all eating dinner, just like shooting the shit. And then John Hurt starts to kind of look like he's like choking a little bit. Yeah, it looks like choking. So he's eating and then he starts to look like he's choking and then he starts like convulsing kind of. Seizing. It looks like he's kind of seizing. Yep. So everyone goes from like, oh, you okay? To like, oh shit, he's not okay. He's laying on the table and then an alien bursts through his chest cavity. Yeah. This is one of the best scenes in the whole movie. One of the most iconic. This is one of the most iconic scenes in film history. This is like, this defined horror for a generation the way like Jaws did before it. Like, this is big, people. It is. Because you don't, you don't see that coming and it's so like visceral and also i believe the actors were not told what was going to happen so their reactions are genuine yes because they didn't know that the alien was going to burst through the chest which is when you get that great there's one shot where it first sort of pumps out and the blood hits them and there's just a shot of them all like in shock like they all stop for a second and pull back from him and then John Hurt starts moving again, and they all, like, rush in to help him again. But there's that great moment of, like, literally they all just stop helping because they're all so messed up by what they're I seeing. I love that. Well, I don't love that they're messed up, but I love, like, how genuine that reaction is yes. because I don't think anyone would hop right up and be like, ah, oh, chest burster, like, I need to <laughs> I need to attend to this. Right. It's You'd just be like, some... oh, God, what's happening? Exactly. Yeah, and you would – you probably – you're – at least part of your, you know, your lizard brain would be backing away from that threat, even though you know your friend is in a lot of trouble. This is a really creepy example of body horror, and also the practical effects used here look so good. The alien looks like an alien, like it's creepy. It doesn't look like a puppet or an animatronic. Yeah. At least not to me. I don't think it's... It looks awesome. Yeah. And there's a great, there's a great shot... It's really understated. It's the shot of the chestburster as it's still on his on his body. They have like other parts of it like slithering still, like in John Hurt's guts, like its tail is moving, its top half is like observing them, and then you just see uh John Hurt's hands like twitching. Yeah. Like, like his body is just at this point dead and it's just being moved by this alien inside it yeah that image is burned into my brain oh my god it's so it's so good and messed up and classic and i'm so glad that i'm not desensitized to how powerful a scene that is to this day oh me too really still hits i think when i first saw this movie i was like i don't know maybe 10 years old Mm mm-hmm I remember I rented it from the library, and my parents didn't want to let me watch it because, I mean... I wonder why. It is an R-rated film, and it's not necessarily a children's movie. But (laughs) I really liked horror at the time, and for some reason I was super into seeing this movie, so I watched... I rented it from the library with my parents' (laughs) help and ended up watching it. And, yeah, that scene had an effect on my 10-year-old self. Yeah. It was definitely scary. I was probably around the same age when I saw that scene, but I didn't see the whole movie until later. They played that scene on some show of, like, scenes in movies or something late at night. And I caught it, and I was like, oh my god, uh, 
that's so insane. I wish I hadn't seen it out of context of the movie. I really wish I'd been able to see the whole thing all at once for the first time, but... I think I know what show you're talking about, too. I've actually seen a lot of horror scenes for the first time on that, if it's the same one. There's Mm -hmm. obviously probably a few, but there was a show that would do, like, the top, like, horror scenes of all time or whatever it was. Yeah, Yeah, and they would always show, like, the most iconic scene from that film. Chessburster was always on there. It always had, like, other iconic scenes, like the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre and stuff like that. So I would see, like, little clips for the first time, and then I kind of liked that because then it made me more excited and appreciate whatever I was watching later a lot more. Because I'm like, oh, people regard this Mm -hmm. as iconic, so. (laughs) Yeah. And for good reason. I mean, I think Alien really, really broke past expectations because... When you look at the early development of this movie, you have these two guys who wrote the script and they're shopping it around. They can't find a director that wants to do it or they can't find a director who will stick with it. The original design for the alien was like a big furry monster, which is like to even think about what that movie would look like is like all I can think of is like the original Star Trek and like some very unscary thing that happened in that. Yeah, comparison. and that was, like, the base for a lot of sci-fi at the time. It's, like, kind of Star Trek-y yeah. or more campy. Yeah. Nothing quite as horrific or scary or tense as this was. Yeah. But, again, it's like we were saying earlier, just so many things had to go the right way or the wrong way in order for it to become what it was, and it yeah. really just came together. Like, that alien design is so good. It's it's. It's perfect. I mean, it's it's so burned in my brain as, like, that's what something scary should look like. Um, you know, it, it's just, it's got this, like, ev- super intense black latex, like, dripping with weird substances. Like, it just looks so awful and, and, and perverse. I think that's what it is. It looks like... You know, if it was a big, if it was like a big Sasquatch thing, I'd be like, "Oh, that's just, that's just Sasquatch, just sassy hanging out with the, the crew," or like a, you know, the Wampa in Empire Strikes Back or something. Like, that's not scary. It's cool, but it's not scary. And then when you look at this thing, it's like, "Oh, that's designed to disturb." And I think that that's brilliant. It's such a great design, and. They only got Geiger because Ridley Scott petitioned to have him do the design instead of the original designs. So it was. It was like this cascading, like getting Ridley Scott was like the catalyst for how this movie ended up being as opposed to what it started out as. Right. It was so unintentionally good. And I think that's why it's been so hard to replicate with like the sequels and stuff. Yeah. They're taking all the elements from the movie, but for some reason it just doesn't click the same way. Although there's definitely arguments for the different sequels. Yeah. I mean, I I would say Aliens is definitely as popular, if not more, than Alien. It ended up being like a more... Aliens is more action. It's a a military action film that is also sci-fi, which I think is genius. Like, I think James Cameron did the smartest thing he could when he got hold of this franchise instead of trying to make it scary again because you you know you can only get those first time scares once 
then it's old hat. It's not that it can't be scary, but it can never replicate the original fear of that first time you see all that stuff. So he went a completely different route and he made it a military sci-fi action movie, which he is so good at. And right, he played awesome. He played to his own strengths and it worked out really well. Really well, um, yeah. But I still prefer Alien. And I think that it's maybe a little less common. I think it usually just comes down like people tend to ignore what comes after Aliens. Alien 3 is not usually in the conversation. Alien Resurrection's a hot mess. But... And don't even go to Alien vs. Predator. That's not... That's not even... No, it's not. That's not even. <laughs> but then we have... <laughs> then we have Prometheus and Alien Covenant. Yes. I... Okay. Unpopular opinion. I loved Prometheus. Loved. Loved it. I liked it. Yeah. Liked it is honestly, like, generous, I think, for most people. They liked it. I loved Prometheus. I think it's a... (laughs) Essentially, I think Prometheus is the biggest budget B-movie of all time. Like, the plot is ridiculous. It's not well acted by everyone. Um, There's some really clunky acting. I don't think everyone knew the movie that was being made as it was being made. There's a lot of stuff that defies explanation, even by close analysis. It's just, I don't think it was like super well thought out. But that being said, it hits certain things so right that I'm just like, I love watching this movie. Like, I love watching it. I love hearing about how it was made. It's one of the best looking sci-fi movies I think I've ever seen, um, including cinematography of like Iceland and Isle of Skye and Scotland and all this stuff. I don't I don't think it's an excellent movie, but I think that I love it personally. But anyway, Prometheus is not the movie we're talking about. No. Worth a mention though. Yeah. Uh but Alien and I think you and I or I know you and I both agree is essentially a perfect movie. Yes. Are there any other scenes that you really love from it? All of them? All of them. There's there's a scene, actually, one of the first shots in the movie, when they haven't woken up yet. And it's going through the ship in silence. You get to this hallway, and the lights sort of all flicker on, and then it goes into the chamber where they're all in cryosleep. And already, that shot is so iconic to me. The design of the Nostromo... And so creepy. And Nostromo, I mean. Get me out of space. Never put me in space. Yeah, I love space. I never want to go there. I absolutely never want to go. Yeah. I really like the scene with the chains hanging down. That's the most horror scene in this movie. Straight up, that is a horror movie scene where Harry Dean Stanton accidentally startles the, the cat that's on the ship and the cat triggered the motion detection device that they have to try to find the xenomorph because it got away when they when it first burst out of john hurt so he startles the cat the cat runs into this hangar bay or something and there's just chains and water dripping yeah dripping water chains like ever so slightly swaying there's this like building tension it's so long too like oh yeah and it's amazing like i don't want it to be any shorter it's so good the way it builds up him 
taking his hat off and getting, I think it's probably just like coolant runoff moisture, um, letting it drip on his head and putting his hat back on, looking for this cat. You know from the second this scene starts, he's dead. It. You just know. You if just you've know. seen a horror movie ever, maybe even if you haven't seen one. You still know. <laughs> you still know. This yeah. man is about to die. And another thing that makes like the horror elements in this movie so good is how little you see the full-grown alien. Oh, my God. Yes. It makes it so much better. And I mean that that's true in like every film. The less you see of the threat the more of a threat it feels, the scarier it feels, and we only really get a glimpse or two of the full-grown alien. Yeah. It works so well. Less is more. And and I think what's what's really important about that is that the person in the alien suit is like seven foot something, and he's super skinny. And even then we still don't just show the alien like there's there's never just a shot of the full xenomorph in the shot at once uh as it sneak sneaks up on uh harry dean stanton it just pulls him away you kind of see it behind him raise up you can see how big it is but that's it and you are kind of seeing the scene from the cat's perspective like once he finds the cat it's just so well done. There's no music in like any of that scene. Yeah. So good. Definitely one of my favorites. I I want to talk just a little bit about Ian Holm being a robot. Oh yeah. Ian Holm's sort of turn of character where we find out that he is not only not human, uh he's a robot, but also he's being his his sort of command over overrides are happening because the mission now that it's found the xenomorph has replaced his job as a science officer on the crew with all he really cares about now is making sure the xenomorph survives and gets back to earth so that it can be probably reverse engineered into some sort of bioweapon by the company which is a a very detrimental thing for the humans left on board yeah it's it's got some pretty uh intense consequences him being a robot basically he ends up almost killing ripley and and also other members of the crew and him letting the xenomorph on the ship in the first place is probably a consequence of his programming right that moment where ripley realizes not only do they have this threat of the alien on board and they've been fighting it or running away from it or trying to kill it, but there is a whole other threat as well, and that is the android. Ash. Ash. Kind of working against all their efforts anyway. So they're in a tough spot. They're in a tough spot. It's a real pickle. And that scene is so interesting where you realize that he's not human. You know, they sort of disable him, and then he is he's squirting weird milky substances. It's very bizarre, very disturbing. And then they talk to his head. They basically turn his head back on to communicate with him about the xenomorph. And I love this scene because they're trying to get information about it. And he basically just tells them, well, it's the perfect organism, and 
it's going to beat you. So you have my sympathies. And then they turn him off. I love that scene because you think maybe they're going to get some insight. And instead, he's just a doomsayer. And I, I love that. I love that bleakness. I love how hopeless they are in this situation. This thing is just better than them, and it's going to kill them. And a robot's telling them that. So Yeah, that's a really important part of exposition, the fact that it is considered a perfect organism. Yeah. Not only are you up against this, for lack of a better word, monster. It's a monster. Yeah. It's perfect. It's a perfect space monster. And you're a human, so you're literally not perfect. Yeah. <laughs> that's, Deeply flawed. Yeah. But, you know, we see Ripley best this thing. So Ripley is a badass, and I've been waiting to get to talking about her because the character of Ripley was originally written as a man slash ungendered. I think they originally thought it would be a man, and then they really liked Sigourney Weaver for the part. So we have our quintessential final girl, essentially. Like, as if this wasn't already enough horror tropes, we have our final girl, and that's Sigourney Weaver Weaver as Ripley. And she's so badass. She's so badass. And it's not even supposed to be, like, gendered per se. Like, it's not supposed to be speaking to um, how, like, a strong, competent woman woman comes out in the end. Like, it literally is just the character is badass. She's such a, she's such a survivalist. She is such a problem solver. She's so decisive. And she kind of realized what a big threat this was from the very beginning while others were still in denial. She started with an air of caution that no one else had. And just watching her methodically problem solve as the movie goes on, I think is really cool. Um, Watching the power of human ingenuity, I think she really demonstrates that super well. And the whole crew does come together, in a sense, to try to do that. And I, I really like that about this movie. And something I haven't even mentioned is I love the, like, blue-collar vibe of this movie. Yeah. They're just, they're literally just workers in space. Uh, they don't feel like astronauts. They don't feel like scientists. It's as far from, like, Star Trek as you can get. Right. There's no, like, otherworldly kind of intelligence about them or anything like that and there's no heightened philosophy about what they're doing right they're literally just working in space they're like farmers working in space basically or like factory workers or something i love that i think that lends so much not only that but ridley scott's desire to give them like naturalistic dialogue there's so many scenes that sound completely improvised and it just sounds like them talking about like, they're talking over each other. T- it sounds so natural. So natural, yeah. And it's just them talking about work and, like, wages and all this stuff that you hear blue-collar people talking about all the time. There's even that great scene where uh, Harry Dean Stanton and the other guy, who are, like, the mechanics, I guess, on the ship, they bring... they Ripley comes down to, like, talk to them about a problem. And they intentionally are just running the steam pipe the whole time so that she like has to yell over this pipe and you get the impression that they there's just so much animosity because she's like higher class worker and gets more than them gets paid more 
and they're they're resentful of that so they treat her you know not as nice basically they're always talking about wages those two they're clearly like the lower class citizens on the ship but it works so well it feels so natural i just love it no i agree i also really like the blue collar thing it's like not only are they facing this (laughs) adversity for lack of a better word but they're not doing it with a heightened intelligence or any specific information that could really help them they're just surviving using what they can to survive and they're just normal people and And, yeah it's brilliant it is and in the end ripley and the cat are the only ones that do survive and i love the end it's really long and drawn out and not in a bad way there's like a couple times where you think it's gonna end like soon but it keeps going (laughs) do you mean like the self-destruct and all that stuff yeah yeah once it begins like that self-destruct sequence and she's running like back and forth throughout the ship and through like steam and she's sweating and there's there's strobe lights the strobe lights oh my god yeah all of that i love that and then she thinks that she's finally kind of home free or like that she's going to escape and i love this part too and she like strips down to her underwear by the way that's iconic too (laughs) it is iconic actually uh so sigourney weaver in her underwear and then the strobe lights with there's no music in the background and it was it'll strobe to like portions of the alien and she has to kind of figure out all all over again like she thought it was over and it's not and now she's here like at this quote-unquote, like, final battle with the alien. I love that part. And she's trapped in an even smaller space. Even smaller. Yeah. It's so good. She starts singing to herself. What is she, You're My Little Star or something like that? Yeah. I can't remember the name of that song. She still beats it. She still defeats this, this creature. And she's exhausted, and I feel exhausted by this point, too. Yes. But her character, I think, was, like, well-deserved as being... Like, she she fought for that shit. Yeah, she did. I don't necessarily think the cat uh, earned his right on the final ship, but... Yeah, not only did she beat the alien, survive, but she got that cat out, too. I mean, that's wild. It is. In a typical horror film, that cat would be the first to go. <laughs> I do like that the cat is like an omen of, you know death it's usually yeah around where there's a there's a funny shot in the movie where it shows the xenomorph like looking at the cat inside the container while ripley's running around trying to you know fix everything which is like maybe you could consider that a little bit of humor interjected but just the bare minimum i mean there is this is a bleak movie it's not there's not much in the in way of comedy in this movie Nope. It's bleak, suspenseful, scary. There's a lot of tension, and it's perfect. Yeah, let's not forget that it's perfect. So because of the success of Alien in 1979, I think sci-fi was started to be thought of a little bit differently, and sci-fi horror kind of became more prolific. And so Alien was very successful. And then the next movie we want to talk about is The Thing. She came out in 1982, and The Thing was directed by John Carpenter, who you might know from Halloween or Escape from New York. 
is starring, among others, Kurt Russell, Keith David, and Wilford Brimley. Uh, and also it's scored by Ennio Morricone and John Carpenter a little bit, too. It isn't Benick! More time to finish it would have looked and sounded and acted just like Benny's. I don't know what you're saying. That was one of those things out there trying to imitate him, Gary. So The Thing is another cult classic, another sci-fi horror genre film, but unlike Alien, it wasn't a success immediately upon release. It wasn't received quite the same way. It is truly a cult classic. It became more popular after theatrical release once it came out on video and then eventually like dvd but right it is up there in like my top probably five favorite movies mine too with alien if you haven't seen the thing once again go watch it this is your friend's recommendation to go see the thing if you haven't seen it it is centered around a research team in antarctica that is hunted by a shape-shifting parasitic alien that assumes the appearance of its victims so in a nutshell, just like Alien, it's a pretty simple concept. Antarctica, much like outer space, is you know a vast area, but often when humans are there, it is confined and claustrophobic. So it kind of shares that claustrophobic and in-the-middle-of-nowhere element that Alien has as well. And then it also has that trapped with a monster specifically an alien monster survival theme. Yeah, you can see a lot of the the DNA in Alien has made its way into The Thing, which is loosely based on The Thing from Another World or Planet. The Thing from Outer Space? The Thing from Outer Space. From like the 50s? Yeah. Uh, it It's dramatically different from that movie. Um, yeah, it's a, a complete reimagining, but... Like you were saying, yeah. based on it. Based loosely on it. But I, I see just as much DNA from Alien in this movie as anything else. This this movie is such an incredible example of the power of practical effects. Yes, that is definitely like one of the things that this movie screams the loudest, is that practical effects are the most effective. They're king. They're king. Or queen. Top tier. Yeah. Top tier. <laughs> Yeah, and and digital effects cannot, at least still to this day, uh, there are things that digital effects just cannot do that replicate. And though they're impressive, and there's a place for them, and I understand why they exist, um, I mean, I hate to be like a purist in the terms of visual effects, but really, like, it is the most effective. Yes. And disgusting. You can see that it's a real thing in the world. It has weight, it has volume and substance and texture and that is something that our eyes as human beings can still differentiate between computer generated effects at least usually and real solid physical effects this movie is such an iconic monster movie because the monster um this movie is especially a showcase of rob botton's special effects He's worked on tons of stuff uh, from Total Recall to 
he's a he's a Paul Verhoeven collaborator. He's a John Carpenter collaborator in other movies. Uh, I think he did the stuff in Big Trouble in Little China. He's just a master of special effects, specifically practical effects and puppetry and creatures and stuff like that. So this movie i feel like was literally just a playground slash sandbox for rob botten to come up with the craziest stuff that he could i was gonna say it looks like stuff that was made in a sandbox (laughs) yeah 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 it's it's just so i it's clear that he just must have had so much fun designing this stuff with john carpenter who is also an incredibly creative person and coming up with these insane visuals of like a dog turning into a nightmare and someone's stomach turning into a mouth and (laughs) a head turning into a spider a spider spider head there's just so many amazing creative ways to demonstrate body horror in this movie there is so much body horror and also the thing isn't unlike the xenomorph which has maybe like three different stages that we see the thing is taking all kinds of forms and not just the assimilations with whatever its host is, but whenever we see it kind of as itself, it always looks different yeah. and always horrific and disgusting. Oh, just so gross. Yeah. I love the, the humble beginnings of this movie, a dog running through the snow being chased by, for some reason, a uh, a helicopter full of norwegians with guns yeah and you find out that they're from another arctic research post and they are killed and essentially because the americans are in self-defense because they think the norwegians are shooting at them and they take the dog in not knowing that the dog is the thing right and in the beginning too like if you translate the norwegians what they're yelling at them um they're saying like you get the hell away it's not a dog it's some sort of thing it imitates a dog it's not real get away you idiots which is so good because yeah. like as americans we don't we don't know we don't and know. the characters don't know they don't speak norwegian but literally they are being warned right there like saying exactly what's about to happen to them yeah. and they just didn't know any better and it and look what happened it's that's such a brilliant little easter egg i think and for anyone who's bilingually uh, English-speaking and Norwegian-speaking, uh, that's a very interesting little tidbit. Yeah, an interesting spoiler at the very beginning of the spoiler, movie. Yeah. But a spoiler that doesn't make the movie any less. Because right. I think we all know like something's obviously something's about to I mean, happen. Ennio Morricone and John Carpenter's combined score is already so, like, something's up. Like, right. It's so eerie. It's got that heartbeat synth. To, like, I love the score to this movie so much. It's so good. But yeah, so every time you see it, it's something different. And it can look completely natural. Like, the dog 100% looks natural. But there's definitely the vibe that something is wrong. And then the other dogs freak out at this dog that came into their pen. and Right. Well, with the music and... Like, the way the camera keeps angling whenever it's showing the dog. Like, yeah. that enough is is kind of so much cluing you in. On it. Yeah. yeah. And that's, like, the first great part of this movie is that dog cage scene. Because that's when we see the threat for the first time. And it almost seems like they've dealt with it, like, for, for a second. 
because like they kill this thing seemingly but it's not dead it seems that at the molecular level if there's like a living cell in this thing it can't be killed and we see it even its blood is reactive which is a great scene where they're just trying to figure out a way to prove who's human and who isn't and they each cut themselves and put their blood into a petri dish and stab the the blood with like a hot piece of wire and the they finally come across a petri dish full of the thing's blood and it literally like pulls it recoils from the hot uh, wire this is one of the best scenes in the whole movie it's so good and it goes so crazy after that like... it goes off the friggin wall <laughs> and there's so much tension too before it gets Leading to that to point that, yeah i love a good tension building moment it's so good and and they test so many people's blood before that and by the time they test that blood it's like there's this expectation that that will not be it because it's someone's blood that no one's talked about yet Everyone's pointing fingers at each other, and it 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 takes your attention off that one because he's sort of like mid conversation as he tests that blood, and then it freaks out, and then th- the thing, which is now tied up like next to non thing people, is starting to transform. I don't even know how they did it, like the the tentacles coming out and like flailing and stuff. Like I I have no idea how they made these effects it's so disgusting and like the guy like going fucking crazy and like convulsing is almost almost to like a comical point like i remember watching this one time like and i recorded that on my phone and sent it to someone just for the pure ridiculousness of it out of context yeah it's almost like a benny hill movie for like three minutes with incredible practical effects it's it's absolutely insane and it just showcases how this movie can jump so quickly from moments of quiet and building suspense into like full-on bedlam insane just people getting murdered people getting hacked apart so much blood like again i know we keep saying the body horror but really like it's just disgusting and bloody and um there's another scene that like does that really well and it's the scene with a defibrillator yes where he goes to defibrillate a guy who's seemingly who has stopped breathing shocks him and then his entire abdomen opens up with like teeth into a mouth yeah it's like the ribs are teeth and it chomps down on his forearms and rips both of his forearms off and then immediately that starts to transform into more disgusting like chaos like gross chaos is the best way like i can think of to describe what happens in this movie and it's funny when you were saying that it seemed like they had dealt with it before because it does feel like that throughout the movie like it's almost like they're dealing with it like um like a spider infestation yeah i don't know it's like almost like it's normal but it's not yeah they're not acting like it's normal per se but they're just sort of they're scientists yeah and and i think they're approaching it with like a scientific method of like we have to be calm we have to be you know they're already living in the arctic these people are used to extreme conditions (laughs) right we have to be calm we have to use (laughs) flamethrowers we have to use flamethrowers that's a rule 
Yeah, and they they have a real gun too, yeah. which is like not good for their situation. But yeah, it's like I think the overall feeling in this movie is paranoia. You have this yes. this feeling of like you can't trust that anyone around you is who they say they are. It's like like in conjunction with all the body horror and all of that, there's this very psychological element to it. Right. Like you were saying, it's just that who is who they say they are and i mean it's so hard to find out and yeah. i think at one point they do kill someone that actually wasn't the thing yeah i think they may have yeah um and there's another part that i really love too when one of the scientists walks in on another one basically being like taken over by the thing he runs out of the room he runs back with macready and He's no longer there. So then they're searching for the guy. And they find him and they're kind of like chasing him outside in like all of the snow. And he's not like fully taken over yet. So he's in this weird like vulnerable position. But the guy looks up and just like roars. I was, I've been waiting to bring that scene yeah. up. It's so good. I love that. Like he looks normal from a distance and they get close and they're like, are you okay? And he makes this, like, weird alien howl. Clearly not, like, a human sound. And then you can see that his hand is, like, starting to, like, elongate. Part of him is malformed, but he's otherwise looks like a human. But he has those, like, dead eyes. And then they blast him with a flamethrower. Yeah. The hum- the fact that he looks essentially human aside from the dead eyes and then that roar comes out oh my gosh it's so good it's such a good moment because you don't know what's gonna happen there like no the alien hasn't really been caught in a compromising situation like that yet we've seen it mid-transformation and it appears that sometimes that is when it's at its weakest is when it's trying to assimilate something or whatever but there's nothing there there hadn't been anything like that yet where it was like, oh, he's almost a person, but he hasn't, he can't quite do it. And then you get the impression of like how alien this thing really is, you know, in its brain. And it's maybe firing the synapses to communicate with a human mouth, but it hasn't developed the larynx yet or something. Like it just hasn't figured out all of it yet. Oh my God. It's so good. One of the best horror movies of all time, it's easily. Just so good. So good. Which is why it fits perfect in the category with Alien, which is also one of the all-time greats. Yeah, yeah. Together, these movies have really created what what came after. Sci-fi horror isn't... People don't bat an eye when they hear that now. It's just like, that's a thing. It's a whole established genre. But these movies, together, very much created that genre um, and helped define it. And the thing also has a great ending do you like the ending i love the ending yeah it's really good and it ends with kurt russell and keith Keith david David. and it leaves like a big question mark it's ambiguous af yeah like we don't know exactly where the thing is if any part of it is destroyed if one of them is has been assimilated and it ends without us ever finding out which is like the perfect way for this movie to end they're basically just sitting there like, all right, well, I guess we just... <laughs> wait it out. We just wait and see. Freeze yeah, to death. Exactly. Yeah. It's horrific because, like, they're going to die. Like, there's no way that they'll survive the cold. And 
you know, they don't have a shelter anymore. They just blew up where they've been staying. They're just staring at each other in the cold and are both very concerned that the other is not human. I know there's a lot of, like, fan theories. Obviously, with something this ambiguous, you would have that. I like the one where, like, McCready secretly knows that Keith David is actually assimilated. And he gives, like, a small knowing smile. And mm-hmm. then it just, like, ends. I love that theory, personally. Yeah, that's really good. I I like not having an answer. Like, I think that the, the ideal, and probably what John Carpenter intentioned, was just we don't know and that sums up the entire movie that paranoia of not being able to trust anyone or anything and you know you get i I think it was a little tongue-in-cheek they play superstitious by stevie wonder earlier in the movie um i think there's a lot of little little easter eggy type things like that that you don't pick up on necessarily the first time or even unless you're looking for it at all yeah there's a great tech film technique that isn't used much really these days and it's the scene where the dog sort of first joins the crew the dog that is the thing and you see the silhouette of its head and it goes into the room of the guy his name's wendell's or something Um, It goes into his room and then you just see the silhouette of the dog and then it fades to black and it's like, well, that's weird. Like that's, that can't be good. I love the creepy little moments like that where it's not giving you everything, but it's giving you just enough. Yeah. Fading to black. That's such a rare technique in like modern film to, to do a fade to black mid movie like that. Really, really awesome artistic direction i think john carpenter was playing on you know classic film technique uh when he did that works so well it does i think it was used so much in like classic film kind of that it almost became a cheesy effect but then if you like rewind it a little bit because it is that way and not used so often now if you use it it has even more of an impact for that reason yeah Because you just never see that. Yeah. I mean, those old techniques were great. And I think they just got so used that they became perhaps corny or cheesy. But when you use them in little snippets like that, they can really have an impact. There was a reason people started doing that in the first place. Right, exactly. So I think we've covered a lot of our favorite parts of the thing and what makes it so great and such an iconic staple in the horror genre and then also alien for a lot of the same reasons yeah so both alien and the thing so closely related they both helped define this new genre of sci-fi horror they both so successfully delved into the body horror they both have these great scenarios of claustrophobia and sort of working class people attempting to you know use their brains to work their way out of the situation there are tropes you see in both that i think have carried on into sci-fi horror today and sort of the best movies i think draw on what was great about these movies when they're working within that genre absolutely i agree and both of these movies are in 
my all-time like top five favorite movies. If you were to ask for movie recommendations, these would be on that list immediately. Alien is my favorite movie. Yeah, yeah. it's a perfect film. Yeah. And the thing is, like you said, it's like a top five for me. So if you haven't seen either of these, definitely check them out. If you don't like them or if somebody that's listening doesn't like them, generally interested in learning why. I would love to know if you don't like one of these or both of these movies. Please explain yourself. <laughs> uh, that's not like a threat or an insult. I, I really, if anyone doesn't like these movies, I really want to know why. Yeah. No, like, I welcome a differing opinion, and if you can give me, like, some valid arguments, more interesting for me. As to why it's not perfect, because it is. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, thanks for tuning into this episode of Weird Flicks But Okay. As always, we can be found on social media, and you can email us anytime at weirdflicksbutokaypodcast at gmail.com.